0: Well, we're in a series uh, these weeks it will take us through the summer called You Ask For It. Over Easter, we ask you first the top questions that you would ask. Uh, we could, uh, what does the Bible say about them? And you gave us some great, great questions. And uh, this morning, I'm in the book of 1 Kings 19. If, you're, if you have a Bible, Old Testament, uh, you're going to need not just the New Testament, but the Old. If you don't know where 1 Kings is, go to the table of contents. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. First and Second Samuel, slow down when you hit First and Second Samuel. Then First and Second Kings. First Kings nineteen is where we are, and uh, <clears throat> this question comes out kind of sideways. We got it two or three or four different ways. It came out with uh, I'm bummed. I'm I'm low. I'm discouraged. I'm burned out. It comes out with uh, just different, you know, just different uh, kinds of uh, words. But it all comes out basically the same. That I'm overdone. I'm like, at the end of the day, you come home, you say, honey, just put a fork in me. I'm done. Pull me off the grill. I'm tired. And I have, I have really bad news for you. I'll get this out of the way early. That's what corporate is going to do to you. That's what America's going to do That's what the system's going to do to you. They're going to ring you out, use you up, and then throw you to the curb. That, that's not good news, is it? No, it's not even news, really. You kind of knew that. You were hoping. You see it happen with other people. It just it hasn't happened to you yet. But the day will happen when you get tossed to the curb. So what are you going to do when that happens? Because they'll use you up and then move on to the next, uh, you know, the next line of, of people who are willing to give their lives to the cause. Uh, and so uh, how do you manage that? And how do you create some margin and not be overwhelmed by that? That's the question. Here's, here's what happens, too. People never come into my office and say to me, I am overwhelmed by the depravity of my own waywardness of my soul. No one ever comes in and says that. You know what they say? I'm, I'm just overdone. I, I, don't, I can't make a decision. I'm stuck. It mean, they don't explain it in theological terms. They explain it in emotional terms. And, and that's probably a good thing to do. Now, here's the really, really good news. Elijah, the guy we're going to read about today, he explains it in emotional terms, too. And the reason he can do that is, he's not only a prophet with God, but he's a guy like we are. James says he was a guy just like us. He's no superhuman. Sure, he was a prophet, godly man, wanted to do well, but he got overwhelmed just like you and I do. And so we're going to hopefully get some hope in this and some direction and maybe some new energy. But the other thing I need to say before we get too far into this is this is not a new message. This is a message I've preached before. And it's a message that needs to be preached probably on a regular basis. Like the guy who meets his pastor at the mall one day and says, hey, you're my pastor. And the guy says, yeah. And if you're like me, here's what I do. When you say to me out in public, hey, I go to your church. Well, first of all, it's not my church, but thank you. It's nice. And Oftentimes I'll say, what, what service do you attend? And they'll say, oh, I'm 11. And then I, I know them by 11 left side, halfway back. I don't know their real name. I just know 11, left side, halfway back, or whatever. So um, I know some of you next week will change where you sit now. Yeah, just in light of that. But this one pastor met someone who attended his church, and, and the guy says to him, uh, the pastor says, do you attend regularly? Oh, yeah, I attend all the time. Well, what are you like? He says, you know, every time I attend, all you ever preach on is the resurrection of Jesus. Well, the pastor said, you need to show up more than just Easter. <laughs> well, this, this message I'm going to give you is kind of like Christmas. You know, I'm not going to do Jonah and the whale probably this Christmas. I'm probably going to do Jesus is born, like I've done the last few Christmases. And this is a message we need on a regular basis, because this one comes around to us on a recurring kind of a way. For, so 1 Kings chapter 19 and the message that, that, that we're going to hear today is a message fr- from the Lord because we need to hear from the Lord about what, he th- what his prescription is when we are overwhelmed and undone and discouraged and, and we can't even put it into words. Sometimes you just can't even put it into words. <clears throat> Sometimes we call that burnout. It's when our expectations are not met. We have wrong goals, we have frustration, and then we end up with wrong results. And so then we do the the thing that we're taught to do in America, which is to try harder, right? And when you try harder, guess what happens? It just gets worse. uh, Wanda and I live uh, down a road that's not far from the uh, college, local college, and it's a windy road. I was going down the road... Um, well, a couple weeks ago, and the, a minute before I was on that piece of road, uh, a college student had gone too fast around a curve, which is a real curvy, hilly road, and uh, came off the side, overcorrected, threw her into a spin, put lander in the ditch across the road, facing the wrong way, and of course she did what any one of us would do. Threw it in reverse and gunned it, and Basically, bottomed out the car into the mud. You know, just dug a hole with the tires. She did all that within a minute, and the reason I knew it is because there's mud everywhere. I mean, it's flung everywhere. How do I know uh, how that looks like? Because I've done that. You've probably done that. Where you work hard, and it gets worse, right? So I, you know, I rolled my window down and drove by and said, I'll, I'll be praying for you. It, no, I didn't. I, I actually pulled over I actually pulled over It's like, call your dad. She said, I'm not calling my dad. I'm gonna call my boyfriend. Okay, call your boyfriend. I don't care. You can just call somebody. Because we're in the mud. And it gets worse, doesn't it? I mean, if we would stopped earlier, it wouldn't have been so hard getting out, but now it's just worse. That's what we do when we're in problems. We spin the wheels harder and fling more mud, cause more damage. And, and we do that because we're taught to really try hard. And what Elijah's going to tell us is, no, it's not time to try hard. It's time to get off the treadmill and rest, restore, bring back the relationships, release the frustration. So, 1 Kings 19. Before you hit that text, uh, you need to get context to the text. Uh, Elijah's a prophet, you know this, but he's in a, t- a period of time in the Old Testament where the kings are bad. They're bad kings. This guy's name's Ahab, bad king. He has a bad name, doesn't he? What's your name? Ab? It just sounds like a bad name. And, uh, and so Elijah goes up against these false prophets of the day, all the false gods, of the day, and they're called the false gods of Baal. That's the name of the false gods, Baal. And, and Elijah says, I'm, I'll strike a deal with you. Let's, let's do a test, and if you win, you can kill me. And if I win, I kill you. Well, these guys go, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole row of us, there's only one of you, we'll take you, we'll kill you. So they go to the test, well then they flunk the test, Elijah wins, and so he puts to sword all the bad prophets of Baal, kills them all. Not exactly a PG, you know, okay kids, good night, sleep tight, kind of a story, but that's the way the Bible is at times. Well Ahab, that was a bad day for him, because he loved the prophets of Baal, they were his friends. So he lost all the prophets of Baal. So what does the king do? What does a a guy do at the end of a bad day? He goes home and tells his wife, right? That's what we do. How was your day? Oh, you're never going to believe what happened. And that's where we pick up chapter 19. Now Ahab, that's the husband and the king, told Jezebel, that's the wife of the king, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. That's what you call a threat. In our terms today, it's called bullying. So what does Elijah do? Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. We make fun of this, but you would do the same, so would I. If some woman comes after you whose husband has the ability to kill you, you'd run too. When Elijah came to Beersheba in Judah at southern Israel, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush. Some translations call this a juniper tree. Others, you might actually think of it in America, we think of it as a willow tree. It's a tree that hangs way down. You could get up in a willow and hide in it, actually. That's that's what this broom bush or this broom tree is. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. God, just kill me. I have had enough, Lord, he said, Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing, Elijah? Get this, the Lord comes to him. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, what are you doing, Elijah? He's on the run. He replies, verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put the, uh, the prophet's, Uh, to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. You get this? Mountains are splitting, earthquake shaking. Verse 12, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard this, he pulled back his coat from his cloak from his face and went and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? You get this same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he replied, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn your altars, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. He's rehearsed this message before, right? I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back by the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, king, a uh, son of Sapheth, uh, from Abel-Mahala, and to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who exa- escape the sword of Je- uh, uh, Hazael. Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And yet I reserved, get this, 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Lord, God, help us to take the heart now the message that you've preserved over hundreds of years on how to face these insurmountable mountains of our lives, these overwhelming senses that, Lord, we, we want you to be there, but we don't know where you are or what you're up to. And we don't want to die in despair, being down. We want to finish well, so help us to do that, we pray, even as we hear your word, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there are some consequences, and Elijah was feeling all four of them. The consequences are really simple of this burnout. And by the way, if you you ever wondered uh, how do I even know what burnout is, or that I'm running low, think of your life as 1 Thessalonians 5, a body, soul, and spirit. Okay? Think of yourself in those dimensions, and think of your your life as a dashboard, and you have these gauges on the dashboard, and you have to ask yourself, how well is my body? How well is my soul? How well is my spirit? Because when any one of them goes in tanks, empty, you're in real trouble. And you may say, well, I'm doing really well in one, but not well in the other. It's still going to be a problem. So it's just good to do that evaluation in a safe place with someone you can be honest with, an accountability partner, certainly with the Lord. Uh, Elijah was really feeling the consequences of burnout. The first was that he depreciated his own self-worth. Chapter 19, verse 4. He himself, on a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to the uh, broom bush, sat down under it, and just prayed, God, just kill me. <laughs> you ever done that? Just, I am not worth much. Let me go, let me die. We depreciate our worth, because we tend to compare our weakness to other people's strength. And by the way, when you do that, it always ends in defeat. And even when you play any game of, of comparison, it's going to be a dead end, because either you're going to be better than them, or you'll end up with pride, or you're going to be worse than them. You'll live in the land of discouragement. Do you ever want to live in the place of pride or discouragement? No, we don't. So comparisons just don't work. So leave it to the Lord. Just stop that kind of behavior, because that's not going to help. It really doesn't help us in the long run. We depreciate ourselves. For Secondly, we underrate our work. Um, pick it up at verse 10. The very front of the verse, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God. I, and he says... "I." They are not cooperating. They've torn down your altars, put the prophets to death. I'm the only one. We underrate the impact that we could really have. And he blames himself, really, for what he really cannot control. Prophets cannot control everything. You can't control everything either. We like to think that we can, but we can't. Since we can't, don't think, well, you know what? If I could just control one more piece of this puzzle, one more piece of this problem, I could make it better. Probably that's not going to work. Here's what we do know, that when you take responsibility for someone, you also take responsibility from them. And and that takes the accountability away from them. So leave them alone. Just work on yourself and don't worry about what others do. Just deal with what you have to deal with. There's a third real sign of the burnout and it's the exaggeration of problems. Chapter 19, again, verse 10, the very end of that verse. He says, and now there's no, no one left but me, and now they're trying to kill me too. He's, he's exaggerated his problems, because at the end of the chapter, what does God say? Oh, by the way, there's like 7,000 more back in Israel, a lot more than you know. He's exaggerated the issues, and that, that spins him emotionally. Um, by the way, if you back up to verse 2, I, this is kind of a funny moment, I think. Ahab comes home from work. How's your day, Jezebel says, lost all the prophets of Baal now I think frankly she liked the prophets of Baal too because they did favors for her so she loses all the insiders so she sends a messenger to Elijah to say uh, the gods be it uh, treat me severely if I don't kill you by tomorrow now she sent a messenger if she'd meant to kill him what would she have sent a hitman, right you don't send the paper boy right no I'm going to hit you in the head with a newspaper. That's not going to kill him. All it's going to do is make him run. So in this moment, she's not acting rationally, but nor is he, because he gets, you know, he gets scared, fearful, and runs away. He exaggerates what's happening because he's really depleted. He's been at a spiritual high, and now he's paying the price for it with that low, and he's focusing on not fact, but on emotion, on his feeling, and the scriptures never tell us that's the basis for our lives. The basis for our lives has always been truth. You'll know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. You have to focus on what you know, not on the sense. It, it's, um, there's a book out by Tim LaHaye. It's an old book called "The Act of Marriage." In the book, he writes that he did this in seminars. Tim LaHaye wrote, "The Left Behind series," co-authored it. But um, he was also a great pastor. Actually, years ago, he pastored where David Jeremiah pastors today in San Diego. It's just a great pastoral heart, a good counselor. He wrote a book on marriage, and he said this: He said, "Don't ever work on finances beyond 9:30 at night as a couple. It's just not good practice. Why? Because you're tired, you're worn out, and it's it's in the evening, and you'll begin to exaggerate the issues. It's really true. Just good advice." You'll begin to work off the feelings. It'll become worse and worse. Then you'll go to bed thinking about that. That's not a good place to be. So don't work on finances late at night it's because it's going to affect your thinking. Les Parrott teaches uh, at uh, Seattle Pacific University, and he's a psychology teacher, but he's written a book on really on leadership called Three Seconds. And in the book, he, he uh, tells us the story of the Apollo 13 launch that went, uh, off, uh, off the charts and problems. And what he, what he found is this. The guys from Apollo 13 came back safely only because the guys at NASA had spent their life building what he calls the muscle of thinking. Because when everything was going wrong in the space shuttle, in that uh, Apollo 13 launch, when everything was going wrong, these guys weren't worried about it, weren't fretting about it, weren't talking about what couldn't be done they were finding a way to get it done and they were finding a way to make this not the biggest disaster the us had known in spaceflight, but to be its finest moment they had really built the muscle to know what they know and not worry about what they don't know if you remember, if you ever watched the movie apollo 13 you know one of the commanders at nasa takes all the parts from inside the capsule another set of them and dumps them on a table and says this is what the guys have to work with to fix it Now find a way to fix it. And they did. They found a way because they were problem solvers. And you know, sometimes we we think that Christians are not really good thinkers. No. Jesus was the one who said, it's the truth that will set you free. It's the thinking. If you'll build that muscle of thinking, uh, God gives you this creative ability to live way beyond what you think the measures are of your own limits. And, and to be able to do more and to expand your brain more, you, because we only use a small percentage of it. And it's the Lord who created that. I think there are moments he puts us in, in these stressful environments, not just to simply trust him, but then also to figure out a way and to use the brain that God gave to us and to use it well for his glory. So it all comes down to this thinking issue and what you tell yourself to know that you know is the truth. Uh, and, and so don't allow the emotion to carry you away. It's you exaggerate the problems, you do that, and then you're emotionally driven. And you'll never cycle out of that. You'll always dig the ditch, the ditch deeper. There's a fourth consequence, and it's this. It's abdicating the dreams. Um, in verses 3 and 4, you see that he just runs, and he prays, God, just kill me. Running from the dreams, giving up on them, giving up all hope, uh, and Satan would love, if in no other place than in your mind, he would love to make you a failure. If he can't do it anywhere else, do it in your thinking. And, and then that he prays, God, just kill me. Because before this, is, we're, we're too hard on him. We have to realize we've all been in a place like this when it would seem better if we just got out of the picture. And we can learn from Elijah's life, from his actions, his words, his prayers, his emotions, everything, and understand what God is really up to. And so, what does God do? Well, first of all, he begins by restoring Elijah's body. Elijah's been through a huge emotional roller coaster ride, big victory. Now he's on the run. And he begins by restoring Elijah's body. Verse 5 He puts him to sleep. And when he fell asleep, he wakes him up, says, Here, take some bread fresh bread on hot coals, jar of water. And, and this is what God does not do. God does not run him more. He actually relaxes him, tells him, take a nap. Get up and eat something healthy. Now go back to sleep. He doesn't say, you're depressed. That's disgusting. Shame on you. What's wrong with you? You're in the pits, buddy. Pull yourself out. Those kind of jabs don't work do they they don't work on people you use them on right you've tried it so have I they don't work so don't use them on other people but I have good news for you they don't work on you either so don't use them on yourself allow your body to be restored and and allow your body some recovery time God does put him to sleep Psalm 127 we we labor and toil and work hard but he grants sleep to those he loves he gives him food. I think of Psalm chapter 23. The Lord's my shepherd. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Even in the, even in the presence of my enemies, he prepares, he prepares a table uh, before me. And I, so I fear no evil. So he takes away that all. It's very restorative, if you think about it. So, restore the body. Number two, release the frustrations. Um, verse 9. You see... Um, Elijah goes into a cave and he spends the night and the word of the Lord comes and says, what are you doing, Elijah? Where are you? What are you doing? You have to be sure you understand this. The Lord knew where he was and he he knew what he was up to. Why was the Lord asking that question? He wanted Elijah to admit to it where he was and what he was up to. And so he allows Elijah to emote to him, just to speak freely. And God invites you and me to speak freely to him. He tells us in, in moments of our angst and fear to cast all our cares upon him and to not be anxious about anything. He invites us to be open and honest with him and not be fake. And Elijah just needs to let that unravel a bit. And he does that before the Lord, not before all of his friends or his enemies, people out to get him or even people around him. He, he, he does that before the Lord. And Elijah makes mention the bad things the dark days the lost perspective the faded truth and to be honest we've all had days like that so who do we tell that to we tell it to the Lord Philippians chapter 4 don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication let your requests be made known in other words if you're anxious about this tell the Lord that and when you present that petition before the Lord with thanksgiving you present that request to the Lord. Lord, I need a job. I need a better job. I need another job. Lord, I, I just need help. I need wisdom, God. You just pour out your heart to the Lord. And you can cast your care upon him, 1 Peter 5, because He really does care for you. He really does give a rip. And you have to understand, Elijah's filled with verse 3, fear. He's talking with eyes and ears and and, and voice of fear. He's really intimidated at this point and resentment and low self-esteem he's downright suicidal in verse 10 he's self-righteous go back to verse 10 he says i have been very zealous for the lord god almighty he's saying i have and no one else has dang it you can almost hear that can't you it's like the ungodly people have you ever done that before where you just look and go young godly people get great vacations you know have you ever had that what's wrong with me what did i do wrong You know? The ungodly get in and fill in the blank. And that's that comparison game again, isn't it? It's self defeating. So Elijah begins to do that, that self pity thing. He feels cheated and angry, rejected, lonely. I'm the only one left, God. And so God wants him and he wants you and me to approach the throne of grace and know that it's a safe place to unpack it, it's a safe place to be so honest. Respectful with God for sure, but certainly honest. And, and, he, and here's the great news: He already knows He just wants you to admit, admit what he already knows is happening in your heart and life. And the good news is this, he's not blown away. Uh, God in heaven is not going, "What? You're the only one left? I didn't know. You know it never happens. He already knows, and he already has the plan. He just wants you to get up to speed with it. So it doesn't hurt to be open and honest with him. Um, Admit the anxiety before the Lord because he cares for you. And then thirdly, you refocus upon God. Look at verse 11. The Lord says, go out and stand at the mountain in the presence of the Lord. See, he's not even dealing with the issues. What he wants Elijah to see is just how big God really is. And the key here is to listen to God in the big events and in the small events. You may have a God moment, as David Maines calls it, a God sighting. And it's, it's where you, you see your problems as big, but you see God as even bigger, you know? It's, you know the story of David and Goliath, right? Everybody know that story? Okay, just me. All right. Well, it's a good one. First Samuel, go read it. Everybody else was scared. Why? Because they're looking at David. And they're looking at, at I'm sorry, they're looking at Goliath, Right? What's David looking at? He's not looking at Goliath. He's looking at how big God is. How dare he insult the Lord God of heaven? See the difference? If your eyes are on Goliath, you'll always be scared. If your eyes are on how big God is, then you realize, oh, he could take this on. That's not a problem. There's another way of looking at it, too. People would say, you know, he only has five smooth stones. They're really small. Goliath's really big. David's perspective, the guy is so big, I can't help, I can't miss Think of it that way. Just a different perspective, isn't it? By the way, read that text on your own. The king said, if you kill Goliath, you get no taxes, and you get to marry my daughter. Okay, what young guy wouldn't like that? (laughs) Right? Sure. Even if you die, what a way to go. I mean, there was this chance. No taxes? Whatever those are. If you're a teenager, you don't know what those are, but I get a girl. So what's not to like about that contest? So that's why you're saying, that's in there? Yes, it is. Read the Bible. It's a good, it's a great read. But the point being is this, is David saw how much bigger God was, and all, all God wants to do with Elijah at this point, he wants to say to, to Elijah, look, just look at me for a moment. And so he takes him to the presence of the Lord, go out and stand at the mountain, verse 11. And what does he do? There's a powerful wind, and it tore the mountains apart. What's he saying to Elijah? I could tear this place up. And then he shatters the rocks. And then there's the earthquake, the end of verse 11. And then verse 12, there's fire. And then at the end of that, there's a whisper. And and he just wants wants Elijah to experience God. And that's what's going to happen when you're this low, No one else is going to know or or maybe even care about where you are. But the Lord does. And he'll, he'll have you draw close to him. And Elijah saw that and then saw he was very powerful. Now, he's emotionally changing, but his thinking is still messed up. So when God says, what are you doing, Elijah? He starts the rant all over again. Verse 14, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He just starts this whole little sermon all over again. No one's out there but me. I'm the only one left. They want to kill me too. And he's refocused him upon God, but he's not quite there yet mentally. Now, if you're taking notes, you want to jot down for sure because the parallel to this passage in First Kings 19 is First Thessalonians chapter five, which is, "May God Himself sanctify you through and through." May he set you apart as holy. That's what that word means. he sanctify you, set you apart as holy in body, in soul, and in spirit. Those are the three gauges, if you will. And he wants to restore the body. He wants to release the soul and refocus the spirit before the Lord. And then when all that is done, you know what's going to help change the thinking here? It's going to be service. You have to put this thing in motion. And then when you put it in motion... Then you're going to get unstuck. There are people who have recovered from the bad stuff in their life, but they've never moved beyond the recovery. Okay? They always stay where they are. You know, and I've known guys, that, and I have the highest regard for AA and other groups like that, but sometimes they get stuck. I am this. It's the way I'll be the rest of my life. And the Apostle Paul says, you, you were drunkards, you, you were liars, you were vicious killers, you're, all these horrible things and he's talking about the community, and, and he says, and such were some of you. It were, past tense. In other words, there's recovery. You can get out of that. And the way you're going to get out of that is to make it work for good, resume serving. And so what, is, what does the Lord do? Verse 15, the Lord says, you go back the way you came, you start picking out some new leaders, and you pick out the guy who's going to succeed you next, that'll be Elisha, the next great spiritual prophet. And God did this for Elijah's own good. It stops the pity party, and it gets him back in motion doing something good. And, and I believe the road to better self-esteem is really in serving others. Every year, um, the last several years, we've had a Christmas shop in, right here in, in our building. And every Christmas, we had this shop. you know who the happiest people are? The people work in the shop. They're the ones setting it up and cleaning the clothes and setting out the toys and giving them away and bagging them and putting them in cars and helping people. They're the happiest ones. We go help with um, Katrina or other flood victims or other natural disasters. The the happiest people there are the ones helping. They just serve. And because they're serving, they're the happiest ones. And I'm, I'm telling you, that's the way you put your brain into motion to think differently is to go help someone out and make a difference for good and then you realize yeah the world's a sinful place but we're making it better for God's glory and we're helping some people who need to see a bit of God's glory and uh, once we were there and now we're not so we're gonna help others so resuming uh, uh, resuming the serving others and when that happens that gets you unstuck in body soul spirit and then ultimately serving because in life you don't have to stay where you are. You don't have to stay in that bad spot. And, and, and here's, what, here's what I know. Most people, when you say, I'm down, I'm discouraged, I'm and you, you give that little bit, what do most people do? They begin to back away. Oh, that's nice, right? They back away because they don't know what to do. They don't, they're overwhelmed by that, or they don't want to be involved in it, or they're afraid it's going to take them under, so they back away. You've had that. Happen, or you've done it with people. Don't realize it's happening, but let me tell you what the Lord does. He actually comes up to you in the midst of your pain. He comes into into your uh, pain with you and travels with you through the pain and brings you up. So, since he's drawing close to you, this is the time to draw close to him and attend to that body, that soul, that spirit, and make sure that you're putting it into good motion by resuming serving others. There's the word of the Lord for the day. Let's bow together for prayer, and let's stand as we pray. Would you stand with me? Perhaps it's been during the message, or maybe during communion time, you realize, I need the Lord as my own personal Savior. I need him to be mine. Then I, I just encourage you, you open your heart to him now, where you're standing. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. You call upon him and tell him that you need him need to pray with somebody or you need to have someone pray for you, we'll be off to the side, uh, Mike will be off to the side to pray up at the front to the left. And Father in heaven, this is a really common question. We all get to points where we're overwhelmed and overdone, and uh, you don't want to leave us there, you don't want us in that spot, and so we thank you that you preserved for us hundreds of years ago the life and times of Elijah, who's a guy just like us just like us. We need what he got by your grace. And we know each one of us needs a little different mix because our gauges are all different. So Lord, would you minister to us where we are? For some, it's in the body just to take a Sabbath day. For others, it's in the soul to look at relationships and emotional honesty. For others, it's in the spirit. It's our walk with you our purity, our holiness before you. For others, we've been in that recovery cycle, but we haven't really done anything good with it. So it's time for us to pick it up and serve. Minister to us where we are, we pray, because we don't want to stay stuck in this bad spot. Thank you for the recovery and really the redemption that's ours in Christ. You've been good. Your ways are always right and holy. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. The church says amen. Amen. Amen.